Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is Nimco Ali, activist, anti-FGM campaigner, and author of What We're Told Not To Talk About, But We're Going To Anyway. A hugely important piece of writing, it contains interviews with women from across the world on their experience of periods, sex, menopause, and more. Nimco has been a hero of mine for some time. She's a fiercely independent thinker and has fought tirelessly to raise awareness of female genital mutilation. So Nimco, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I wonder if I can start with a bit of background. Um, You were born in Somaliland into a wealthy family, uh, but you were forced to flee because of the civil war. Can you tell me about your time there and what you remember from that journey of leaving? Yeah, um, so I did. I was immensely privileged, and I was actually talking to somebody the other day about um, both my FGM and fleeing um, the Horn of Africa happened at the same time within two and a half months of each other. And um, so I was born in Somaliland. My mother always wanted to have her kids at home, around surrounded by her mum and her sisters. But I spent most of my time either in Dubai or Manchester, and we would always go back every summer to go visit my, my grandparents. And one specific summer in the late 80s, the war was about to start, and and it started in the north first because they were the ones that wanted to break away mm. and were kind of uprising against the um, dictator at the time. I had no awareness of what, what, what it was like to be a Muslim, what it was like to be black, what it was like to be Somali. I just had a brilliant life. And I think when you have, or when you're cushioned by wealth and privilege, you are very rarely um, experience any kind of discrimination or dis- disadvantages. Mm. And all that disappeared in a blink of an eye. And, and also what also dis- and disappeared was my um, non-awareness of my gender. So I didn't know I was a girl. I knew, obviously, I knew I was a girl. I knew I wasn't a boy in the sense that I knew there was something different between me and my uncles because I didn't have any brothers at the time. But at the same time, I, there was no specific entity to say, because you're a girl, you, play, you have pink um, clothes, and you play with this or you do that, until FGM happened. And for me, that was, again, another thing like, what the hell is that? Because I knew what male circumcision was. I knew that was very much spoken about. So, yeah, I had an a, a incredible time and leaving um, what, um, and what is Samala now on fire as a six-year-old and turning seven um, before I came back to the UK was a traumatic experience because for, for the first time I literally had nothing to anchor my life to. So the FGM happened on my last visit to Africa mm. um, as a child and it was kind of like a parting gift. I don't think if the, insta- the instability of war had not happened that my mother would have had me cut so young mm. um, or maybe she would have had conversations and things would have changed. Can you tell me uh, how the events of that day unfolded? Uh, because you didn't, as you said, you had no awareness yeah. of your gender and you didn't know that this was going to happen to you that day. Um, and then it it's shaped your, your life and your career yeah. now. 
Um, can you just explain if you're comfortable what happened? Yeah, it was honestly, it's the weirdest thing. So what happened is that I left my birth city on fire and we had a massive house in the capital, which is Hergesa, which seems a lot smaller now when I go back, but it was a massive house and we ended up trekking. So because my grandfather was so interlinked with the Revolutionary Army, we were we couldn't leave by the main exit points. Um, and also the army were very much looking out for my young uncles at the time because it was a very um, key conspiracy to get rid of not just the leaders, but also their sons because they are the ones that are probably going to take over from them. And to have somebody talk like that about my uncles who are, I think at the time, 11 and 14, was just like incredibly scary. And I understood all this stuff. So we left um, in the back of a truck, we walked. So. A lot of those images that you see about uh, refugees fleeing Syria, I can very much relate to that. Mm. So we left and we so we went from a war zone and then all of a sudden, miraculously, we ended up in Djibouti um, and we're in this other villa again. And it's because my other side of the family um, still were in Djibouti. So my dad's side of the family were in Djibouti. So I went from extreme privilege to a civil war to basically trekking through a desert and then coming back into this like amazing villa and it was interesting because there was a lot of um my cousins and others who were on holiday from boarding school we were all kind of congregated in um Djibouti so again as children you just kind of just get on with things thinking like I don't understand what's going on and I knew there was something being planned or something was like you know being um organized but I had no idea and and what it was and I remember the cutter um, coming to the door. So the do- like, the villa that we were in had like an open courtyard, and you could like all the rooms fed into this courtyard, which was the entry to the um, door. And I remember um, running to the courtyard, and my grandmother greeting this woman at the door. And I didn't think of her as a circumcised. I didn't think of her as a cutter. I just didn't like the way she looked. Yeah. And um, it, it was I don't know what it was. I think it was like a six cent. Um, there was something in me and I speak to a lot of my friends and I think there's this kind of for a lot of us who became activists or a lot of us who ends up who, who ended up knowing FGM was wrong there was this this kind of inner gut feeling of saying I'm just really not comfortable with this so my mother asked me to go and have a wash um before um the like you know and whatever was taking place was taking place and I remember running out the back door and like just running and running and um, my cousin um, who is like from Manchester with like a Mancunian accent was also there so he ran into so I ran into him and I was just about to say tell him like like, this woman's gonna eat me I have it's this really interesting thing I I really want to like figure out how as a um, just seven-year-old I knew what was going on I knew Mm. what was gonna happen and within an instant I was like in front of my I thought I'd run really like like a lot but what but in the blink of an eye I was like you know pinned down on the floor and this woman was like standing over me um golding me telling me that I'm a privileged little prick like you know do you know how much it costs to get um like you know clean blades and and anesthesia like you know anesthetic um wipes and stuff in the middle of a crisis and I just thought I, I don't even know who you are and in that it's really bizarre so in the last three and a half years I've started to have conversations with my mom I've gone back to Somaliland where ironically Somaliland and Manchester like Hergesa my birth city and Manchester are the only two places I've ever been uncut and cut mm. and when I went back to Hergesa I was in my um I was 31 and I was an FGM survivor and I'd, and I and I'd done some incredible stuff on international footing but at the same time I was still that six-year-old that turned seven on the journey as a refugee 
Um, and what I had no idea was that the woman that cut me was also the woman that cut my mother and the woman that helped deliver me. Mm. That was, I wasn't interested in FGM after the actual act happened. Um, and we came back to the UK and I was really like done with Africa. Mm. And yeah, so I just, I don't remember, there was nothing physically painful of the act of FGM. I think going to the toilet for the first time, it's it's quite strategic and and there's like massive routine in order for to ensure because I had a really invasive form of FGM which mm. is called infibulation and there's a massive routine to basically get you up every other hour to make sure you pee so your urine so your um so so basically the wound doesn't fully seal up your um, female anatomy so there was like like you know a tedious um kind of having to get up every night like you know three four five times in order to pee and obviously because it's so painful you don't want to pee and you don't really empty your um bladder fully which ended up leading to the complications that i had when i was 11. and i want to ask you about those complications but just before i do um you mentioned you had a particularly invasive form of fgm i wonder if you can explain to anyone who is listening who's unfamiliar the various forms there are and and which form you had yeah so there are four um kind of internationally um defined forms of fgm and type one which is a clitoridectomy which is the removal of the hood of the clitoris and partially um the clitoris because 80 percent of the clitoris is internal so all women who've had fgm still have a percentage of their um clitoris internals so that's type one type two is a removal of the, the hood of the clitoris and then also um, some of the external anatomy so whether it's the external labia or the labia majora or man, menorah so either two one or the other of the um, of the um, anatomy and two and three which is the most invasive and I would never say that any FGM is worse than another and you can't really get too specific about the types of FGM because the people that are doing this are not medically trained mm, so course. my best friend who I've known for um, 30 years she had she had the same as me so in my community it's very common to have infibulation which is they do type 1 and 2 and then either all type 1 or 2 and then they stitch the anatomy together and leave like a little tiny hole for you to urinate through and also menstruate and she ironically also conceived a child through that so I was just thinking like how the am I allowed to swear? Mm, I was like how the fuck did you do that? and it's but but what was interesting was that it was last yeah it was almost a year since she had her defibrillation i had mine when i was um 11. that's where they cut the, the stitching yeah so basically open up your um anatomy to have like the normal opening that um that women will have so mm. so basically they allow the curtains to part as mm. like you know as some, some people say but what was really interesting was the fact that her clitoris hadn't been touched so at the time when she before she had the defibrillation they she would be defined as having type 3 fgm mm. but then afterwards she'd be just like you know typed as like you know having non-identifiable or non-category um, fgm mm. so because the act is it has no medical benefits and it has it makes no sense at all it's one of the mm. most ridiculous things it's i find it sometimes that we that we give it too much legitimacy by trying to give like specific mm. definitions to it but um yeah and type four is any kind of injury or um kind of either pulling or grazing or pricking of the female like you know genitalia but the legal reason is like any damage or um any damage caused to the female anatomy for non-medical reasons. And that's the key thing is that if you do something to the female anatomy, the vagina, the vulva, um, without it being medically necessary, then it is um, FGM. 
Mm. And you mentioned <coughs> afterwards the pain and the the fact that you had to go to the loo every hour. Um, how did you feel afterwards? Did you realize what had been done? Were you angry at the time? How did you feel? Yeah, I was no, I was very, very angry, and I think I've been angry until about a year and a half ago, two, two, um, two years ago, in terms of when I've kind of come into my ability to understand that my mother had very little control over what, like, you know, the process of FGM, but she had power in order to help me be educated and be somebody else. I was furious. I was pissed off for a long time, and I think that kind of ironically that's what kind of drove my activism it wasn't mm. anything to do with the fact that i want to change the world i was just like really really pissed off and for me um this same friend of mine who um we grew up together in cardiff and she was saying to me the other day oh i used to hang out with your brothers and your sister in the because my grandmother moved and um, was in cardiff as well and she lived three doors down from my grandmother and she said oh we always used to hang out in the square but you never used to come out and i was like i was contemplating my fgm and she's like you were such a deep bitch i was like yeah i was i was moody mm. and i was it was yeah it was just like it was just there was very little information out there and there was very little um context to the fact that I thought it was incredibly stupid and I just wanted to I just wanted to have some kind of context and some kind of conversation around it. And my mother, unbeknownst to me in her not giving me anything of saying this is what makes you a woman, this is amazing, was trying to give me an avenue out to say that this is not something that I like, you know, that I support or I mm. think it's it's a great idea. Mm. And um and I think that's what's kind of led me to the position to be where I am, to really understand and have a lot of compassion for women who are not just victims of FGM but sometimes the perpetrators themselves. Mm, mm, that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned that you were looking for context um, for it and, and your mother in not providing that enabled you to see what was wrong with it. Uh, but one of the things that I know you did was when you came back to the UK you spoke to a teacher. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, <coughs> I just think as children, we always, well, first of all, I wanted context from my mum, so I was just, like, looking at her thinking, we, I, ironically, we spent more time together during my FGM than anything else, because obviously she was the one that was taking me to the toilet on uh, on an hourly basis um, uh, um, some nights. So it was, like, would she be able to explain to me, like, you know, what this thing was, like, what was going on? And she didn't, she didn't, I, I, I don't ever remember her saying anything about it, other than the fact that, like, you know, waking me up and, like, you know, and weirdly enough, like asking me if I was okay because I was groaning. So it's, it's really bizarre when you think it's an unnecessary act, but at mm. the same time, yeah. So then I came back and I had the same teacher I did before I left for um, Somaliland that summer, and I just literally I was very I was very blunt. I was very expressive and I think mm. that that's what kids do they don't mm. necessarily know that they're not allowed to and I think that's why it's interesting that the book has been changed to what we're not told that what we're told not to tell because I had no idea I, I I was told not to tell but at the same time it's one of those things but this is my teacher I didn't want any help from her I just wanted her to explain to me why like I just wanted her to say oh this is this is like you know this is what it is and this is what it's meant to be whatever and um, she replied back to me saying like, oh, well, that's what happens to girls like you. And in a very othering way, and even in that moment, as a seven-year-old, I knew that wasn't something that made any sense. And I'm like, mm. what do you mean like girls like me? Because like I said, I literally didn't think of myself differently. I just thought mm. like I was just living, I was always living in my own world, but at the same time, it was a world where 
everybody um, understood. And as children, we are massively self-obsessed. They are mm. like, you know, kids are the most egotistical. Yeah, you were Nimka. You weren't a, a girl like yeah. anyone. So it's, yeah, it's because like, like all kids, and my and my, 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 my niece is exactly like that. She just probably thinks she, like, from the age of two to five, they assume everybody knows who they are. And basically, like, they're the most important person because in their families, they're loved. The world, they, they, they are the world to their families. And I was the world to my family. So therefore, I was just thinking, like, why am I not the world to everybody else? And anyway, that's that's like, you know, that's my firstborn child um, kind of things. But yeah, I just, I just told her I was very explicit. Mm. And I think it's just one of these things where you just, there's no way of, there's no polite way of talking about it. So you either become very, like, regressive and don't say anything, or you just, like, become so brutal that you just, like, like you know talk about the whole act and that's what I did as a seven-year-old and I can kind of um, sit here in retrospect and think that must have been quite shocking for the seven-year-old who you wanted to make sure was okay because of the war that you saw on TV but then at the same time when was not expecting you were not expecting her to be like you know well miss this weird looking woman did this and I had to pee every other minute but it really hurts what is it Mm. so uh, yeah I Honestly, I can guess that's quite phasing for a, um, a white woman in middle uh, Manchester. And then at 11, as you mentioned, you developed um, some complications uh, as a result of the infibulation. Yes. Um, and you were de-infibulated. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I moved from Manchester to Cardiff and there's a massively predominant Somali community there. Everybody I knew had FGM. But, you know, just before I went into um, senior school, I collapsed the playground in my primary school because I had a un- I had. Um, a urinary infection we got into my kidneys because obviously I wasn't emptying my bladder um, as I should um, and so I was I, w- I was rushed into hospital um, and somebody always says like I, I never if you don't know like I don't remember life before FGM in terms of the fact that did I lose some teeth was that painful I don't understand I don't really know how to measure pain and discomfort so it was just the norm for me from 7 to 11 to feel the way that I did I, I, did, I wasn't thinking of like you know I'm having um like you know severe back pain there it could be something wrong with my kidneys I just wasn't that engaged in terms of my body and I doubt many 11 year olds are so um yeah I collapsed mm. and again that was for me that was another um kind of factor where the, where I was in a major hospital in Cardiff and they could see what had happened to my anatomy but nobody wanted to speak to me mm. nobody wanted to have a conversation and then I remember my mother um coming to me after I had the defibrillation and she's like, you can't tell anybody this, you can't tell anybody any of this stuff because all the girls, like my friend who I know, like um, I was talking about, were all infibrillated. So the idea that as an 11 year old, I was walking around with an open vagina mm. meant that I was like, you know, probably um, like, you know, ready for sex or something. I just, I literally never used to understand when, um, when senior politicians and people used to say, um, one of the main reasons for FGM is chastity and purity and I was like who's having sex with six year olds because the global average age of FGM is five Mm. and in my community a lot of these girls it's before they start their period so who's having like can we talk should we be talking about pedophilia as opposed Mm. to like you know justifying um, FGM so and I decided then I just thought you know what fuck this I'm like it's not my place to be looking towards these people for answers and questions Um, they don't seem they don't seem to care and I think that was for me that was very much more upsetting than 
I didn't really blame my mom. I didn't. Re I was angry at her to a certain extent, but at the same time, I also knew that she had a lot of other things to deal with. She'd kind of lost half her family in the civil war, and my teachers weren't going to help. The health service was not going to help. So, I ended up just trying to find somewhere somewhere else in order to get context. And about a year and a half later, I found um, Nawal Ada Salawi and her book on the hidden phases of Eve about her own FGM. And that kind of contextualized the fact that, yeah, actually this is this is what happened to me and a lot of the people that are around me might not necessarily be my friends, even if they are my family. And I think that was a very isolating thing to do and I just mm -hmm. kind of grew up in that kind of context. So can you tell me how you went from that point to becoming this incredibly outspoken uh, and articulate activist on FGM. I know after university you didn't immediately go into activism, you actually went into the civil service fast track, but I believe what changed your course was when you were asked to speak to some pupils at a school in Bristol about your career and your success, uh, and, and then you found out that many of them had also experienced FGM. Can you tell me that story? I remember when I first um, like was like you know really confronted with FGM was in 2006 when I went to a local academy in Bristol and um, there were 14 girls all in year nine and we were they were they were they were a lot more outspoken than I could have been at their age. So these girls, like one of them says, like Miss, is FGM um, halal? And I remember they were all sitting. It was like it was in a it was in like that kind of um, science classes. So there was like a long table, and there's forty like you know fourteen of them all like squeezed together sitting around like in this little um, bit. And I said no. And I said why would you ask that? And I said anyway, what the hell do you know about FGM? And I swear I did not say. And it's never okay to ask women if they've had FGM or not, or especially girls. Um, it's like how many of you have had FGM or know somebody that have put your hands up and not expecting I'm thinking it's 2006 mm. we're in Bristol and 13 out of the 14 of them had been cut and they just literally wow. put their they just put their hands up and the girl who hadn't been subjected to FGM was this like really pretty girl with with a gap was like really shocked and then the one in the corner and they did what I do it's like they regress back to their stage of when they had the FGM so they basically are internally that seven-year-old so these really loud girls were basically all just turned into children and then out of nowhere she snapped the, the one at the other side um, and I see her now in Bristol she's in her mid-twenties now and she was like, oh, don't think you're special to um, the other girl. Don't think you're special. They're going to, like, you know, take you to... And, and ironically, she, she, she mentioned my, my birth city. She's like, oh, they're going to take you to Hargeisa. They're going to rip... And she was basically very much verbatim about the act of FGM and very gruesome and factual mm -hmm. about what had happened to her. And... Um, and I had to slap, I had to snap back and I was like, no, that's not going to happen. There's nothing wrong with you. I was so shocked. I was so... I taken aback and then and then I walked out and I went to my office and just burst into tears. Mm. And even in that moment I didn't like I didn't want to talk about my experience. I didn't want to be Nimiko Ali, who's this girl who's this girl who's got into the fast stream really successful but also with a mutilated vagina. Um so just kind of like started doing work in, in Bristol, had that like, you know, started working with the police and having conversations. Um, and I would always talk about in a third per in a third person. Like, oh, I know this girl. I know mm. these stories. I know that. And then I transferred to Bristol um, fr um, fr from Bristol to London in 2010. And I felt 
I thought I should still do stuff. I feel guilty, so I'm going to start to volunteer. So I volunteered for a, um, a charity that was working with girls who'd undergone FGM. And this girl had been sectioned under the Mental Health Act because she had the same type of FGM that I did. Um, and then in a year later, she was doing this um, art, art therapy in East London. And she said to me, oh, can you come and, like, you know, please support my art, like, you know, come, come see my show. I'm going to be speaking. It'd be really good to have you there. And I never said anything to her about my own experience of FGM. And the girl was late and I got there and the people who were hosting were like, oh, do you know where she is? And I said, have you even asked if she's okay? Because she's really sharing something that's massively um, vulnerable. And she came, she was late and she got onto the stage. And well, they dragged her onto the stage to talk about her artwork and she was there just like physically shaking. And in that moment, I thought, you know what? My silence is so complicit to the misunderstanding that mm. this little girl, this girl does not know that there's another person in this room who's had the same form of FGM, who's actually doing okay. Um, like, like, Nim, like, what are you doing? Like, she's, like she could be you. Where we, like, you know, you needed somebody at one point, and you ended up finding yourself. But you need to be, um, you need to kind of do this. And I got onto that stage and not knowing that she was mic'd up told her about my experience of FGM which was kind of like broadcast into this room of like you know hippie people um like cool like young arty people and I was like fuck I've just basically just come out in front of everybody told them that I'm a, a woman that has undergone FGM and essentially that is when my activism kind of started because I just thought okay fine if the cat is out of the bag then let me see what I can do with that and you've subsequently developed an astonishing record of raising awareness about an issue that really I think many people didn't understand that there were 140 million but women around like there's 200 million 200 million, million women now. around the world um, having this um, practice and yet you you came up against obstacles whereby politicians were would assume it was a sort of cultural yeah. tradition you know I mean, akin to having a specific meal on yeah. a religious day or something. Um, can you tell me about that and how you fought against that misconception? I think oh, it's, that's where humour really comes into it because the whole point is like FGM is just so horrible. And I think a lot of people understood it or knew about it, but we just like, it's just too like weird. It's a bit like Ebola. Like, if I said to you Ebola, you just think, like, I just don't even know how to comprehend that mm. because people bleed from their eyes it's just like sometimes like too much information mm. it's just unnecessary and it and it means that people can't really consume um the whole process because you don't need every single person in order to recover every every single person does not need to be an un, like an anti-fgm activist they just need to be collectively care about young um girls and for me i think that's what it was it was humanizing brown girls because i mm. don't like i was very privileged and very loved and then all of a sudden because i didn't have the trappings of privilege i just became my race i became my gender i became my faith and those were always bigger than me so when i was mm. growing up in cardiff the hard left still consumes a lot of um, um welsh politics the votes and the political voices of my community were more important than me. And so for me, it was like getting people to understand that individual person, that individual child, and actually care to say, like, it's one girl, forget about the 200 million women, it's that's a massive consumption, it's just one girl, one generation. And um, and that's what it was, and it was just, yeah, just trying to do that and trying to get people to see beyond culture and beyond race and really see the brutality of the act and the stupidity of it, which, 
um, it's it's really hard to do. And then what was also really difficult was having come in against my own community, my own family, in terms of like, why am I talking about this? Like, why am I shaming them? And a lot of the Somali community, I've never said that this is a Somali issue. I've never said this is a Muslim issue. It's a violence against women and girls issue. Um, and I would always push back saying we have in endemic like you know rape culture here in the uk and in america we have domestic violence where two women a week are dying fgm sits within that context where it's just so normalized and if women are surviving then it's like it can't really be that bad i think that was the main thing is like well like you know are you okay that's like yeah but it's still like something that was really horrible but you're fine so and the world like the un who um and other people did not do women a favor by placing FGM as a health issue and not a human rights issue. I think that mm. was the fundamental thing is people try to understand it and mitigate the damage it did as opposed to really say, this is just like, this is just like fucking wrong. Stop it. Why are you taking blades to um, girls' anatomy? And having, having worked um, inside governments and also understanding the political system and also understanding power and privilege. I always realized that if you actually convince somebody who's so far removed from FGM but has power that FGM is bad, then like, you know, you're more likely to kind of um, get, get everybody else along your side. So I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go for the richest white people in the country <laughs> and I'm gonna go straight to them. And if they care about FGM, then mm. for God's sake, like everybody has to care about FGM. For a long time, we spent time on community activism and community mm. outreach and I was thinking, like FGM has been going on for four thousand years. People are dying. Of course, they know it's fucking bad, but they just, they it just doesn't click to them that they need to um, stop this because there's some kind of benefit for them or there's some kind of fear of what the uncut girl looks like. And I think fear is a massive um, kind of powerful tool to use. And I think politicians use that all the time. And communities carry on things because the fact that they're scared of change. And we've now seen the first conviction in the UK for FGM yeah. and we're seeing FGM being taught in schools. Yeah. Does that give you a sense of optimism about the future? Um, it does. And I think what was really interesting is the fact that there's a massive um, focus on prosecutions that have never been about prosecutions. They've always been about prevention. And um, mm. there's a lot of things that are illegal in this country that would, that, that still happen. Mm. And I remember this, um, the first con this first conviction and the mother ended up getting 11 years. And I thought... And, so, and, and, and someone said to me, well, that's amazing. I'm like, actually, it's not. I said, I know men who've raped and killed women who get less. Mm. So it was the, the, and also the whole point of there, there must be, it's really, hard, it's really hard for people to understand, but there's a level of compassion I have for women who are systematically entrenched in, in that culture. Mm. And there's an interesting thing that I've seen in the last four years since I've been traveling across Africa. There's a level of, there's some kind of, intimate love and respect between women and their cutters which mm. i ha didn't have because i was like like you know, i was subjected to fgm ripped and then basically came came, um, came back to the uk and was able to say like what the fuck was that and um so i i was in um i was in somaliland um like what was about so 2008 march to 2000 um, um, march april and that's the first time i sat down fully with a cutter and I was having a conversation about her because I realized that for the first time I had the power I mm. had gone beyond FGM and I think there's a powerful 
um, like you know, journey to do that. That a lot of women are not allowed to heal and be beyond the FGM. A lot of the women who are in this activist circle are constantly reliving their trauma for some other people's entertainment or some kind of concept of this is how we have to understand. And for me, it's like FGM happened to me, but it's beyond that. It's like what do we do for the world mm. for the 200 million women who have cut or the 70 million that are um, at risk? And I remember coming back to the dinner table, and this. Um, this um, cutter, her name was Aisha, and if anybody knows, well, it's in the book anyway. Mm. So I re- so I named my vagina Aisha because I wanted to have a different conversation and a different relationship um, with her than that of just FGM and the sense of being owned by the community. But um, so this woman's name was Aisha, and then I came back and I was I, and I was sitting with my mum and my auntie, and it's literally it's only been about two and a half months since my grandmother passed away, and I to- and I and I. T- talked about how like you know haggard her face was and how like you know I think like you know the burden of the kids that she maimed must take a massive toll on her and then out of nowhere my mom and then my auntie was like oh I saw so-and-so and and I was like who's that who is that who is their cutter and um and she said yeah I saw someone in there and then my mom was like oh how is she and then my auntie said oh she looked really lovely she's like she'd put on weight she was shiny and I was thinking why are you talking so like lovingly about a woman that inflicted this like you know really um brutal act to you but i think there's just like a weird love and kind of conversation in that which i think the psyche around fgm is a fundamental thing to understand and for women who've undergone fgm hopefully this mother who's been sentenced i don't think she's a victim of fgm but still i think she needs a lot of psychology like Mm -hmm. you know a lot of like you know therapy and a lot of help as much as she needs to be in prison and told that her um, the things that she did were illegal and unacceptable in this country. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to the book. Um, when did you start thinking about writing it? Um, I've got this imposter syndrome, which the whole point is that I never think that I can do anything. I've written reports, I've done all these things, but I never say like... You've I'm done so much. Yeah, and it's one of those things where a lot of people think it's quite easy, but it's strategic. And I've always been very because I've worked in politics and I've always been behind the scenes it's never been about me it's always been about the movement and other things but um so actually it was my editor Emily um from Penguin who came to me um she reached out to me on Twitter we had a conversation and she was just like I think she regrets it now hopefully (laughs) it'll do well it's like honestly it started the same time as just when Brexit we Brexited but I delivered mine so (laughs) Um, no but um so she came to me she said I want I think she wanted me to write more of a memoir and I was like I'm too young to do that. And also I I wasn't ready to talk about my experiences and myself. And I was having like the most difficult time. Like I was going through a breakup. My mother wasn't talking to me. It was just like fucking hell. So I was like, I don't want to be writing like, you know, and also I didn't know what chapters were coming. So in that, in that time I would have just written about dark times mm. or the life that I could have had had I not become an um, activist. And I said to her, I wanted to write more of like a unifying thing of first experiences because whether I've had FGM or not, I'm going to have my first period, mm. whether you've had. So I wanted to say this whole thing that women in one way or another, there are moments. It's a bit like sliding doors where we are 100 percent equal because there's nobody that can have your first period for you. Nobody. Mm. If you're longing for a baby, somebody can empathize, but they can't really um, understand. And weirdly enough, this was all to do with race as well, because my ex had two interracial children or mixed race children. And I used to look at him and I used to say, like, you're a white Oxford educated man. Your kids are never going to have the privileges that you do. And for him, he was like, no, but, you know, like, you know, 
they're my kids. And I was like, I know they're your kids, but when the world sees them, they see mm. young black boys, um, young, like, you know, and they look more like my kids than his kids. So it was just a lot of the time was trying to get him to understand that actually what they're experiencing for the first time is something that you will never be able to know. Mm. And I thought that was, again, for women, where the fact that as, like, mother to mother, when you're basically, when your daughter's giving birth, that's her first experience, periods, menopause, all those things are first experiences. And I wanted it to be a collection of stories about bleeding on the tube or whatever it was. But at the same time, it just, women, because of the fact of the experiences that I've had, just massively opened up. And mm. it became something a lot deeper. And it took me into a journey where I ended up like, you know, understanding um, people a lot more and really having a lot of um, gratitude for the ability to not have any shame over my anatomy and mm. i think that's one of the key things is that i'm not embarrassed and one of the key that's one of the things i've never had i've never um been um ashamed and that's quite scary in my culture because shame is a powerful tool mm. shame is what you use in order to control women mm. because either you're the whore or you're the madonna you're the perfect wife or you're the heart like you know the woman who's loose and never succeeded and either you're the mother or you're the one that's like you know barren so this idea of shame and fearing you to be something that society doesn't respect mm. is something that i just never really felt it doesn't mean that i'm not insecure in the sense that i don't believe in my abilities like you know is this book going to be good it's going to be that i'm self-conscious about those things i nitpick of stuff but i've just never really been like I could never be shamed into anything. Mm. And then mm. one of my friends always says to me, oh, like, you know, uh, what did she say about something about um, Somali Twitter? And she said, well, they always go at you for, like, political things, but they never, like, try to shame you. I was like, mate, I've stood around Parliament in a vagina suit. Like, these <laughs> fuckers can't, like, how are they going to shame me? Are they going to show me with my hair? Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just really, it's a strange thing. So, yeah, it's it's a book, it, it's, it's a book that came out because... Um, I started it because I thought, okay, fine, if Penguin want to publish it, great, I need some money. <laughs> I never make any money, so I was like, I need some money. And then it just turned into something that, I th in the last two and a half years, has actually really allowed me to accept being a woman and also accept the fact that I don't, like, you know, perfection is not something that to aspire to and it doesn't exist and to kind of let go of those things. So as you mentioned there, you, you speak to, I mean, dozens and dozens yeah. of women um, from all walks of life with a huge array of experiences. I mean, whether that's a former anorexic yeah. uh, about experiencing orgasm or a homeless woman about having her period. Um, where, how did you even begin to go about that I mean it's such a huge undertaking but it's it's because I have conversations with um, one of my former ministers used to say that the good thing about you Nim is that you've got good chat so it either mm. leads you up a mount like either leads you to your like you know your end goal or um, it kind of gets me into trouble and, I, and that's the thing is like I've always had conversations and they're very like and it was, and then some, and I also know how to stop myself. So I, I, I was always in these places, and everyone wants to talk about my vagina. So I was like, let's turn the tables. Let's talk about your mm. vagina. Let's talk about mm. your experiences. Mm. And I think that opened the door because I was so open about my experience. I've just got this little gift that I can talk to people from. I probably could, I could have put the prime minister in there and talked about the idea of like, what is it like, um, not being able to have children? Because I think that is something that the world keeps having those questions and keeps saying those things mm. and. I think that in the in the pregnancy chapter, I would I didn't want it to be about babies. I just it's this whole thing about 
everybody assumes they can have a baby until they can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was my favorite line from Sex and the City when Charlotte was like, I've spent 20 years trying not to get pregnant and I can't get pregnant. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm all about finding out that you're fertile before you start taking contraception. Nimco, we're running out of time, so I'm going to let you go soon. But before I do, just two final things. You're obviously very busy uh, talking about the book yeah. at the moment. Uh, do you have any idea what you'd like to do next? Um, well, I've just set up a foundation with one of my um, friends. So alongside this, I've been doing a lot of work around supporting the African-led movement in um, Africa to end FGM. And I think, I d- well, my, my ultimate goal is to open a and b I want to have a job that I can go home from. <laughs> well, you can't go home from a and b but you know what I mean. Like, I kind of shut the door to. But I really, I really want like to change the realities of how people see the continent of Africa and really empower and the concept of the female future of Africa. So I don't want to go into politics, but I will always be semi-involved in politics, but I really want to change the narrative of how we invest in women and girls on the continent of Africa. So if I could do anything on that platform, I think that would be something that that I'd be honored to do. And finally, a question that I ask everyone uh, who comes on. If you could give your younger self, that young girl struggling with the aftermath of what she'd been through, one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> um, you got me like really emotional. I t- you know what, this sounds really weird. I've always wanted to go back and change things. I've always um, thought, oh, if I could go back in time, I'd want to change that, I want to change this. But I think it's it's really quite exciting now in terms of the position that I'm in and, and the things that I'm doing. So I'm not sure what the advice I could give that might change the kind of the trajectory of what I'm doing is. Um, ultimately, yeah, it is um, follow your passion for politics, believe in you. I keep being as loud as you, um, like, you know, you're, um, you're being, and I was immensely loud I don't know how I got away with a lot of things I don't know how I still get away with a lot of things it's just maybe because I just start laughing afterwards um but yeah I think it would be I think it's going to be okay it's literally going to be okay and there's and there were moments which I thought it wasn't going to be okay and I think that was that wasn't necessarily around the FGM but I think it was more around the activism Mm. yeah so yeah I think it was just I think it was just that whole point of yeah just thinking um yeah it'll be okay Nimco, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming along today. It's been completely fascinating and totally wonderful to talk to you. So thank you. Thanks. And to everyone listening, what we're told not to talk about, but we're going to anyway, is out now. So that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania. And more importantly, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it, as well as its position in the charts. So until next week, thank you and goodbye.